Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Racers Toolshed, the very first one of 2022. I'm your host, Richie Billing, and today I've got another episode packed with ideas and inspiration, fantasy writing tips, and I've got details of my latest book marketing experiment, and the results are pretty, pretty interesting. Before we march on any further, just a quick reminder to give us a follow or a subscribe if you like what you're listening to. It would mean a hell of a lot if you could also share this with anyone you think may be interested too. And let me tell you this as well, leaving a simple review has powers beyond measure. (laughs) So if you just have a, a second to spare, please leave us a review on iTunes and you can now rate podcasts on spotify so if you do listen on spotify please a quick honest review would would mean an awful lot if you'd like to get more help with writing fantasy you can join our writing community you'll get a free book on creative writing when you do too as well as a bunch of other handy tools like lists of publishers and lists of book reviewers and you can also check out our patreon page to get access to writing classes workshops and some books as well if you have any questions at all, please don't hesitate to email the fantasy writers toolshed at gmail.com. Happy to accept comments, cases, requests, any questions that you'd like us to cover, please uh, write in. Right, on with the show. And first, I'm thrilled to welcome back to the toolshed fantasy author and YouTuber Rachel Emma Shaw. And we're going to have a chat about how writers can manipulate the likes of evolution to create truly unique and original fantasy worlds. It's becoming harder to find unique and original ideas in the fantasy genre, but exploring science is a great way of doing so. And today we're going to look at evolution, which is a great way of helping to create original monsters and species for your stories. And to help me do that, I'm delighted to be joined by the lovely Rachel Emma Shaw. Rachel, how are you doing today? Hi, Richie. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. Oh, no, it's great to have you back. If you haven't caught the first few episodes, Rachel uh, has an excellent YouTube channel called Science in Fantasy, and she's also a neuroscientist and a very, very talented author. Absolute nerd. We forgot that one. That's my credation there. Well, I think everyone's already got that opinion. (laughs) Probably. So uh, we're going to talk about evolution today because when it comes to coming up with unique ideas for fantasy i find that going down this route is a good source of inspiration it's something that i've done in my novel prize lament but rachel talk us through firstly how evolution works just so that everyone's sort of on the same page i think we kind of know but it'd be nice to get a nice scientific explanation of it Right. So God made the world in seven. D- no. Okay. Okay. I joke. <laughs> All right. So basically, it's uh, the the adaption of a species to the environment it lives in, whether that means um, sexual behaviors, you know, how to uh, attract a mate in that environment, or uh, the effect of biological influences. You know, it means that if there are traits that mean it is more uh, likely to survive in that environment, it will at its heart. So you've got, you know. Is it a a colder climate? So creatures that maybe hibernate when it's cold or they have um, extra fat or they have fur, that kind of thing will encourage that species to be, well, it'll it'll mean that species is more likely to survive and therefore more likely to pass on its genetic information to the next generation, which is basically what apparently we are all here to do. Absolutely brilliant explanation there. 
<laughs> not quite the, the one my professors would have given at university. I'm like, nah. So how do we apply this to fantasy world building then? Well, how not to? The, honestly, this, I mean, we could go into this for hours, but it's all about thinking, um, you know, splitting it up. Do you want to apply it to the here and now of your story? Or do you want to apply it to the history of the world that you've created to help give the creatures in your environment a more cohesive feel of how they all fit and work together and how they work in that environment? You know, I've picked up so many fantasy books over the years where there's a creature, I'm like, well, how on earth does that survive in that environment? Please tell me like, that this is the one of the last few ones of its species because surely it is dying out because it would not be able to survive in the environment that it's been created. Like, I don't know, snakes in um, Arctic. You're like, no, that's just, it's just not, it's not physically possible unless it was a magic snake, in which case, okay, just erase everything. Magic makes it fine, that's, that you can do that. So you can, I think it's a great way to, to help create a, just a, a feel to your world that feels right and you know thinking about uh, I had someone raised a great point on the YouTube channel a few weeks ago but they said why is it that we all too often have a fantasy creature that just stands alone on its own evolutionary branch you know think uh dragons as an example you will have um just the the dragon race existing but no other species that are akin to dragons so like we have chimpanzees and gorillas that are you know our primate near relatives we don't stand alone on our own evolutionary branch but often people create a fantasy creature that's just stood on its own it doesn't have other types of species that are similar not the same but they they've adapted to their own niches over the years and i think that's sad we should do that we should have them more yeah, I think so. Some ideas came to mind when you were speaking there. And contrasting ideas as well from Tolkien. And mm. one the, one of the, the creatures I always like is Shelob. I think that's mm. the obstacle at the end. And, the spider. Yeah, and so I have such a big spider, big creature like that. I mean, spiders don't eat an awful lot anyway, do they? But it's you understand that it feeds and preys upon orcs or people that pass through its lair. Oh. Well, yeah, and also the oh, spider has an exoskeleton. And I think, I mean, I know I learned something about this and it's escaping my mind right now. So, But this is the kind of thing that would, if I was going to create a giant spider in my world, this, the question I would ask would be, can spiders exist at that size from an exoskeleton? Um, you know, there's like, there's reasons why all creatures are limited, like giraffes. What, there's a reason why they can't have longer necks than they have because, you know, they've already, um, they've got a very... They've got like a secondary heart pulmonary system that like helps get the blood up even higher. And if it was even more than the giraffe would just be passing out from a lack of um, oxygen to the brain. And, you know, that probably has been a natural limit over the years. Maybe there are giraffes born with a neck longer than it is. And those giraffes have died off because they couldn't do that. So but there are natural limits on the species that we can create in our worlds. And I think that all too often, because it's fantasy, we forget about those, which is like hand wavy magic. Yeah. And I think there is an extent that you can do that. That's like it's fine. People will accept it. But if you're trying to create a story that isn't one of those, um, oh, I don't know, escapisms type stories where everything is just ma linked to magic, if you're trying to create something that does feel a little bit more real, then I think these are the kind of rules that you need to be taking into account and evolutionary limitations are a rule that should be factored in. Yeah, definitely. And 
I was going to mention this other example from Tolkien, which ties in what you just said there, is do you remember when they're going into the Mind of Moria and they get attacked mm. by the big squid? Oh, I love, I mean, it's, that's one of the best scenes in the it film, is, of course. Yeah. But how did that squid survive there? Yeah, isn't that like a lake? Like, what's going on? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently passing people. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot in Tolkien where, like, I mean, you've got, um, what's the creature, the Balrog that, you know, yeah. Gandalf fights a few scenes later. So, you know, I think everyone recognises that you don't look to Tolkien for realism. I, I hope not. Otherwise, what you're doing then is creating a lot of headaches for yourself. But I think if you if you compare that to a lot of more modern fantasy books where, you know, people, they've created a lot more realism. You know, the, the Shire as a, a system could not exist. Like, there's a lot in, in Tolkien that if you drill down into it, it yeah. just doesn't work feasibil- feasibility-wise. But that doesn't matter. That's not why you're reading Tolkien's books. But then there are other books that we're, we're now creating, which we're thinking about realism in all these other ways. And yet if we forget it when it comes to biology, then it just feels like a glaring error. Do you think now nowadays that writers feel a need that uh, a need to explain things to a certain extent and the more we do that the less fantasy it is i mean that's a really complicated question um yeah, and i think to land you with that one <laughs> no it's fine I, I think i'm going to alienate people however i answer this one so let's go with it so i think that people do feel a need to explain more they shouldn't like magical realism like just hand wavy magic did it is a style of fantasy that is a beloved style of fantasy that we've had for years and I think will continue into the future. I don't think that it's wrong and I don't think that using science and fantasy is wrong. I think they are two different styles and we need to stop comparing them as one is fantasy and the other isn't fantasy. I think they're just, the fantasy genre is bigger than that. Yeah. To answer the second part of the question there, I don't think that explaining things more makes it less fantasy. I think that what it's doing is broadening what fantasy is as a genre. I really do think that we're at the point of a, a revolution in fantasy for multiple reasons. I think the science is driving it. And I think also um, we're seeing stories that are involving a lot more women's issues. Um, you know, you're seeing better representation of women, which is just meaning that fantasy books are naturally going into subjects of having um, the main protagonist being maybe a woman who's pregnant or a mother or, um, or an elderly woman who's had like grandkids and, and the kind of protagonist that we didn't see much in the past. So I see that as changing what fantasy is fundamentally in good ways. And we're seeing better diversity in all sorts of other ways as well. Yeah. And then I think science is another way that we're seeing fantasy shift now because um, I think it's not that people feel a pressure. I hope people don't feel a pressure to include science in their fantasy. There should be no pressure. Don't include science if you don't want it. But I do hope that more people are feeling a desire to include science in their fantasy. And that's really something to get excited about. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, do you know any good examples of using, uh, of people who've used sort of evolution in their fantasy books? You know, I don't. I, I really wish I did. And I think there are so many ways you can do it. Like, I would love to see a paleo um, paleontologist, paleo, uh, the Ross from Friends. Sorry, it's escaped my mind. I don't know how to pronounce that right. Yes, paleontologist. <laughs> like that you got that. I'd love to see someone doing that and looking at how fantasy creatures have evolved over the years in that world. And that being the main story. Because like, there's so much you could do with that. You could yeah. have them being 
a competitor, a paleontologist to another who is, you know, deliberately sabotaging their digs as they're digging up these, you know, the predecessor skeletons to dragons. And I think that could be a really interesting story to create. And you just yeah. don't see that kind of thing happening. I know, because if you think about like, that, that, what that specific idea about dragons, you just gave me a good, a good idea of like competing things. And if you think about like great white sharks, yeah, or, or Tyrannosaurus Rex, there was like Megalodon. It was like, imagine something that's like even bigger than a dragon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, yeah. But, well, you get some fantastic like art of like underwater dragons, and people are thinking of these. You're seeing people starting to think yeah. of these things. Like, go on Pinterest. There's some fantastic artwork that you can get inspiration from. Yeah, I love Pinterest. Yeah. Always on there. Um, but speaking about evolution, something that I toyed with was magic and evolution so mm -hmm. not as much focused on the the sort of the scientific elements but the magic uh, and how that sort of influenced how different peoples in this in this particular region of this continent they developed and evolved so in Pariah's Lament there were three groups of people all pretty similar but they each uh, they lived in different sort of climates different areas and in different ways as well so some of them were sort of lived underground uh, other ones lived in the forest and in the hills and the mountains and things like that um, and they each were given I can't remember what the it was a shared world building thing now so I didn't design this I just had to sort of link it in with the story which was a bit of a weird one but um, they were each given magical daggers and the way these magical daggers worked is that Whenever they killed something with this dagger, they absorbed the life energy. Um, oh. And then that sort of shaped or gave them power. But little did they know that it was shaping, changing who they were, the, the sort of physical makeup. And over time, this one group called the Amassed, who used it probably more than the others, over time they became really reliant on it and to the point where there were significant changes in how people appeared. And in the end, they became these sort of frog, distorted frog-like men and women. They were uh, quite like disturbing to look at. But they, uh, the amassed people, in, in originally thought it was like a disease that was changing them, not realizing it was the magic. And then that started like a process of quarantine and people who were transformed. Yeah. That's very normal. That's very uh, human response, isn't it? To not want to think it's the thing that you are um, not addicted to, but you, you know that thing that you yeah. find essential to your life. To to assume it's everything else other than that thing first. Yeah, definitely. And then it, it, as the their efforts of trying to stop or quell this disease that they thought it was, it it, it carries on getting worse and worse and worse, and then more extreme forms coming, like they start trying to euthanize, the transform people. And then the transform people, because they have changed, they're sort of stronger, they've got uh, better abilities, they fight back. And then it, it's basically the demise of the nation because it ends in civil war. That's, that's the sort of evolution that I introduced in Pariah's Lament with magic and how that changed this particular group of people. And that's a really important point that I think too many times we forget about and um, when creating stories is what is the impact of magic on 
the society as a whole. And if you don't explore that, then um, it just it doesn't feel realistic, does it? I keep using the example. It's like, um, you know, if you made a, I don't know, a documentary about Henry VIII and you didn't mention the fact that there were STIs everywhere. You know, it just, you know, the consequences of him sleeping around are the STIs. There's always consequences. And what you're talking about there is the consequences of the magic. And there are lots of really clever ways that you can use magic. Sorry, just just laughing at the fact that I just randomly mentioned uh, Henry VIII and STIs on the show. Um, But yeah, the the consequences of your, um, your magic system shaping the biology is a really cool... Um, thing to explore yeah it's like the, the cause and effect thing if you if you look at evolution is like if i want this character to do this or to look like this or to have this ability it's like well what has caused them to develop that i suppose is is that a good way to look at it when you're building a world and considering the sort of evolution of things yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, what you did there was, in your example, you used um, consequences to make conflict, which directly led into your story. Uh, well, that was the, the whole plot of the story. But you can also think of it in terms of the consequences makes the the backstory, um, you know, the conflict that happens before the story begins, which, again, makes the world feel more real. It, if you, um, and it also, it, it's almost like a, it's a great way of making everything link up. Um, I don't know about other people, but my personal uh, style when creating a new world is I will start off with one concept and then I will go, okay, well, how does this affect? And then I'll start building out. It's almost like I'm stood in a a gray fog and then suddenly I'll see one thing appear and then I'll start dismantling, uh, just waving away the fog around it to expand the rest of the world. And, you know, it's, it's about asking the question, okay, so you have magic that does this you know you've got a sword in your case that absorbs energy well then what's the effect on the economy you know does this um mean that um this is now the 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 gold in the world this is what people are trading and you know how does this affect relationships between other um civilizations in the world um you know then you look at how it affects the um the biology is what you went into and i think that you know evolution is a great example of a way that you can build out um, the consequences of the magic. I, I had a lot of fun designing it. And like you say, it, it was a way of finding an original, well, a more original angle. So again, the magic of science. <laughs> oh gosh, I think some scientists would be sad by that. But no, I agree. <laughs> no, the science of magic. Ah, uh, there you go, even better. Rachel, no, I think it's... fantastic having you in the tool shed again. Thank you for having me back. This has been wonderful. Yeah. It's been great having you here. And how can we find out more about you and stay in touch? Oh, please do find me on my YouTube channel, Science and Fantasy. Um, I just love an excuse to get nerdy. Each week I tackle a different topic. Um, Recently it was the evolution of vampires, which I enjoyed that one an awful lot. Yeah, I've got that racked off there to check out. It's a, yeah, I like that one. Often it's the ones that I love the most that get least watched, though. I'm like, I think this says a lot about my personal taste and things, but there you go. <laughs> well, my favourite vampires at the moment are what we do in the shadows from that TV series. The, the energy draining ones. I find those fascinating. Colin Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. So, I love him. Makes me laugh every time. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. 
Uh, thanks very much again, Rachel. And thanks for listening, everyone. Big thank you to Rachel for taking the time to come onto the show to share her wisdom. If you missed that at the end, you can find Rachel on YouTube and Instagram. Just search Rachel Emma Shaw and the link will be in the description too. Now, it's a new year and I don't know about you, but I quite like to set myself targets and goals just to keep me motivated and driven. Otherwise, I'll just sit around watching YouTube all day. Uh, did you set yourself any goals last year and did you achieve them? Uh, what have you got planned yourself this year? Write in. We, we would like to hear your thoughts. The fantasy writers to us at gmail.com. I had set myself last year a goal to finish uh, the first draft of a novella, which I did so because it was pretty sure. So I managed to get through it quite early. But after speaking to a few people, it, I was basically told that I needed to turn it into a novel. And it was meant to be a duology of novellas. So I, just, I decided, oh, screw it, I'll just put it into one book. So I started that task of, of turning it into a novel in the September and just managed to get it done. And then literally closed the laptop and started throwing up with food poisoning. So I was out of action for the next five days after that. So couldn't even celebrate. But yeah, please, I want to hear your goals. It's great to hear them. And you can inspire other people too by sharing goals like that. So now I've got a few calls for submissions for you. Some interesting ones too. All paying, I think. Yeah, pretty, pretty good. So first up, uh, the 2022 Parsec Short Story Contest is open for submissions. This year's theme is Hearth, Song and Table. Uh, three and a half thousand words is the limit. And uh, it's $200 and publication for the winner. The deadline for that one is May 1st, so you've got a bit of time. To find out more, just go to Parsec, which is P-A-R-S-E-C-S-F-F.org. Neon Hemlock Press is seeking queer stories of dark speculative fiction across genres, featuring mechas and mechs of all stripes. And this is for their anthology, Luminescent Machinations, Queer Tales of Monumental Invention. Deadline is January the 31st for that one, so you need to get moving. Word count, just under 6,000 words. And they say the sweet spot is between one and 4,000 words. They're paying eight cents a word, which is big news. So just go to Neon Hemlock, which is N-E-O-N-H-E-M-L-O-C-K.com. Publisher Vintage is seeking submissions for their Fit for the Gods anthology. Stories between five and 10,000 words. And the deadline is the 1st of February. Now, I had to do a bit of research for confirmation that they're actually genuinely offering to pay this level and it's 1500 pounds for each successful contributor and the stories have got to be original that is the the key now it sounds pretty cool vintage are, are quite an established publisher obviously you've got a bit of waste to, to be spending 1500 quid but to submit you just have to send an email to fifth for the gods anthology at gmail.com do your own research though before you do so just to make sure you're happy and, and content Dark Peninsula Press is seeking horror and dark fantasy short stories for their upcoming anthology, Cellar Doors Issue 2, Forbidden Magic. Sounds interesting. Deadline is January the 31st, and the word count is between two and seven and a half thousand words. They pay $25 a story. 
and you can find out more at darkpeninsulapress.com. And lastly, Hydra Publications is seeking grim, bleak, epic fantasy and sword and sorcery stories for their uh, next anthology called Ghosts of the Old Gods. Sounds cool. Deadline is the 31st of January again. Where count between six and 10,000 words, so definitely one for the longer stories. They're paying $35 for a successful submission. And you can find out more at hydrapublications.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Not only have I been the owner of Mint Mobile for the last few years, I've also been a customer. I don't know if you knew this, but anyone can get the same premium wireless for $15 a month plan that I've been enjoying. It's not just for celebrities, so do like I did and have one of your assistant's assistants switch you to Mint Mobile today. I'm told it's super easy to do at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. Now I'm going to stick with short stories because I, I do really enjoy short stories and writing them, reading them, and I am... Uh, decided that I'm going to write another one as well before I dive back into editing uh, the, the novel I mentioned earlier. And I think it's what I like most about them is this exploration of the, the pivotal moments in a character's life, these moments where things change. Uh, I've written a good few, been fortunate to have some published in a range of different places, paperback only, anthologies, online magazines, journals and radio. They've all been a bit uh, varied, but it's been really interesting and I've had a lot of fun writing across genres and not being tied to that particular project. You, you, there's less time involved. And there are lots of other benefits to writing short stories too, and especially getting them published. And first of all, when I got my first short, short story acceptance, for me, that was just, it gave me encouragement and it gave me belief. It's someone liking your story enough to publish it. That is a really amazing feeling. So it's definitely that verification is so important to, to writers. Secondly, and obviously linked to the first, you might get paid. Not all publishers do pay. Some pay what they can afford and others are more established. They can pay quite well. If you write a lot of short stories, you're very talented. You could make a living, I suppose, off, off selling short fiction like that, but... For, for a lot of us, it's it's quite difficult to make money or serious money from writing short fiction. Now, another benefit, it helps to build your writing CV, your resume, portfolio, catalogue, whatever you want to call it. When it comes to getting that book deal that you really want or trying to get, uh, get signed by an agent, if you can show a decent resume of all different publications, then that's going to send them a positive signal that other people are liking your work as well. Another benefit is when writing lots of short stories, you're naturally improving your ability as a writer. Short stories, everyone is different and each one requires a different set of skills to, to write. So, and, and also the, the things that you need to get really good at, like creating characters, um, writing dialogue, having good at concept of themes and stuff like that. This is a good way to practice often on short projects. So I always recommend, especially if you're looking to improve and improve quickly, writing loads of short stories. And lastly, you can reach new audiences and get new followers, especially if you're getting published in big magazines because these have readers in the thousands and you can really 
your career can take off. You never know who's reading one of them magazines. So it's it's a great way to get exposure. But recently I've tried to get a short story published. I've sent it off to probably a dozen different places. Haven't heard back from many of them. A few standard rejections from some. Some have been very kind as to, to give me feedback, which I always appreciate because it's rare when you, you're submitting short fiction. But it got me thinking whether or not there was a, a different way I could use that short story. Now, I'd invested a lot of time and effort on that short story. I'd had feedback from a lot of different people and I'd spent a lot of time editing it as well. So I was pretty sure it was a good story. People were engaged by it and it was complete. So short story, I was happy with it. Now, it'd been a while since I'd submitted short fiction anywhere and I was probably a little bit naive and being so hopeful. <laughs> and I quickly remembered how much I hate the process of trying to get a short story published. There's just long periods of silence, generic responses, and you've got to, as a, from a writer's perspective, you've got to stop and, and take a step back and think, is this worth it? What am I getting out of it? What is the real benefit of me getting the short story published What in, in, in the grand scheme of my writing career? Now, everyone's at different stages, so there's different reasons to get short stories published. But at my stage, I was thinking... Is there a better way to use this short story? Is there a way to skip out the publisher and get straight to the reader? Because that's what matters when it comes to writing out, for me anyway. All I'm asked about is creating stories that readers love. And the way the system is, I have to go through somewhere else first before I can do that most of the time. So I just want to go straight to the reader. And what I decided to do was take that short story and put it in a, or convert it into an ebook and just made it free for people to download in exchange for joining my mailing list. So this is what I did. And I've got the results because it's a still ongoing process, but it's been live for about two weeks. And I wanted to share the results with you because I was pretty blown away. And it might be something that would work for you too if you're up to this stage in your writing career as well, where you're looking to. You prioritize and grow and you follow and your email list over most other things. First of all, I just wanted to say what I decided to do isn't new. I've seen other people do it before and I think it's very clever. I just always lacked a short story there to, to do it with. Now, when it came to this experiment, I wanted to do it for as little money as possible. And the only thing I did or I do pay for is the subscription to a, a book marketing platform called Story Origin, which is $10 a month. And the, for the benefit you get out of it, I just think it's so worth it. Um, I have a, a link in the description to a guide of mine about using Story Origin and the benefits of using it for your, your marketing of your books. But so what I did with this short story is created an ebook using a platform called Calibre which I'll talk a bit more about later. I made a free cover using this uh, tool that we covered uh, on the show a few weeks ago called Wombo Dream, which is a free AI artwork generator. And I just took a piece of artwork, turned it into a book cover. It doesn't look that good, <laughs> I don't think, but it's bright. I wanted to go for bright colors, eye-catching. 
something a bit cool, a bit edgy, which is what you can get from Wombo. And I uploaded that book onto Story Origin. And we had uh, uh, Story Origin's creator, Evan Gow, on the show last season. You can go back and listen to that if you like. And on it, we talk about what Story Origin is and how it can help you. But in short, it is a way you can enroll your book into group promotions and giveaways so that you can network with other authors um, who are going to share that giveaway and your book essentially with their following. So some giveaways on Story Origin have over 100 books. And if you just, as an average, you take, say, every author's got 2,000 subscribers on their mailing list, that's a serious number of people that are getting your book in front of. And I have got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of email subscribers through Story Origin. And there's different ways you can use it. So you can even just link up with one author specifically and share it with their mailing list. I've shared uh, my book with some people who have 20,000 people on their mailing list. And I've had masses of downloads. So it's it's a fantastic platform. There is a free version as well. So even if you just wanted to check it out like that, it's worth it. But essentially, yeah, so whenever someone joins a, a, a group promotion, um, to, if they want to get your book, if they like to see the cover and they want to download it, they have to join your mailing list. And that's the crucial thing because you then get the opportunity to build a relationship with this person. You can introduce yourself as a writer. You can give them free books. You can tell them about the books that are on sale. And you build that relationship between reader and writer. At the moment, in terms of results, I have uh, had this on for download for about two weeks and I've joined about five different group promotions and I've had 41 emails uh, subscribers just off this one short story. Now, when I had short stories published by magazines, journals, I've, I might have had one or two short email subscribers and I've had probably over a dozen published. This is a one short story and I've had 41 email subscribers after, after two weeks. I can keep using this short story for months. And the next plan is to upload this short book onto Amazon and draft a digital and list it for free. And within the book, it, this is the, the, the classic reader magnet idea, which I, I've learned from Nick Stevenson, another book marketer who's really helpful, fantastic content he produces, well worth checking out. And essentially, you put an advert in the front and back of your free book. If the, the person likes it, to, they can click on the advert to get uh, more free stories, free books in exchange for joining your mailing list. So it's, it's a different form of a group promotion, I suppose, but you're using Amazon, the marketplace directly. So another great way, that's what I'm going to be doing next. I haven't had time to get around to do that, to get them to do that yet. But it's something I will be doing. And the reason why... I'm doing this is because it's it's all about growing for me, growing the main list. Because what I've learned is that this is the main way to build a successful career without having to rely on publishers and agents. If you can build a main list of people, of dedicated fans, people who rush to buy your book, and the way you do that is building the connection and writing stories that you love, of course. But building the connection and, and sort of being accessible, I think that's the, that's the key. Sort of engaging in conversations and, and showing appreciation for, for your readers and 
in doing so, people will buy your books. And if you've got a mailing list of 20,000 people who are interested in your books, you shoot to the top of the, the, the bestseller charts because that's the power that a, a mailing list has. So what can you take away from this? Because this is just an experiment that I tried and I found it successful. Like I said, it might not be useful for you at this stage of your career, but if you're looking to build that mailing list to reach your audience, build a meaningful connection with your audience through the medium of emails and the content that you produce and share with them through that email, then this is a fantastic way of doing so and using short stories, which you can produce a lot of quickly. You can submit them to all different group promotions. You can make free covers. And obviously, story origin, there is an element of I've had to pay for it, but it's not a, an expensive in, investment compared to other methods of growing your mailing list, like giveaways, which can cost upwards of £100, depending on what you're giving away. This is a freeway. And this is why I wanted to share it with you and what motivated me to try the experiments, because there are different ways you can use your writing and your short stories in particular. And this is a new way for me. So how do we do it? So the first thing you need to do is download a free ebook converter tool like Calibre, which is C-A-L-I-B-R-E. Link is in the description. And please don't worry, I'm not endorsed to promote this tool in any way, shape or form. It's completely free. I use it all the time to create ebooks. And the reason why is once you've formatted your Word document, you can take that Word doc and convert it into Mobi, which is for Kindles, EPUB, which is for all other e-readers, and a PDF format as well. And you need these files to, to do the next steps. First of all, after you've, you've created your files, and it's always important to te test them out. So download the Kindle reader for your computer, and you can test the EPUB version on Calibre. So always make sure, do a bit of quality assurance checks, and just make sure it looks like how you would like it to. And next up, there are two things you can do. First of all is upload it to Story Origin. We've been through that before. I won't go over it again. But once you do upload it, you then need to enroll the book in different group promotions and whatnot. You also, if you want to give the book away for free on Amazon, you can't list the book for free. But there is a way you can get Amazon to change the price for you once you've uploaded it. And the way you do this is by subscribing and, and enlisting your book in something called Draft2Digital, which is Draft number two digital. I'll put the link in the description. And basically, this is an amazing platform. I'm, I'm so impressed with it, to be honest. And again, it's free. And you... Upload your book. You need all of the three files that I mentioned earlier when you convert in your Word doc, and you upload them to um, the draft of the digital platform, and it automatically distributes it to every other ebook retailer like Barnes and Noble, Rakuten, Kobo, loads of other ones. Can't remember the names of. <laughs> and it, you can list it for any price that you want. So if you want to list it for free, that's what you need to do. And then once you've listed it for free and it's been uh, advertised in all of these different stores, you can email Amazon with the link and say, I would like you to price match 
on the Amazon marketplace as well after you've uploaded it. And they always do. They always just turn around and after a couple of days and just say, yeah, that's no problem. And then you can basically advertise your book for free on Amazon. So there you have it, an alternative use of your short stories. Remember, this is an experiment for me. I, I will, keep, of course, keep you update, updated on the results. But so far, 41 email subscribers, more than happy with that, to be totally honest. I'm expecting to get more. I've only been, like I say, I'm only two weeks into it. I'm going to keep using it over the next few months, maybe change the cover and just do a few different experiments, see what cover works best. If you do try it as well, please let me know you're fair. And like I say, with marketing, I am a digital marketer by day. And what marketing is essentially is, is a series of experiments and seeing which one works best. And that's what I'm, I'm doing here. And, and hopefully you find it of some use. Now it's time to dive back into some uh, well-building inspiration and we're going to have, have a look at Greek mythology, which is one of my absolute favorites among the mythos of our world. I just found that there's such a rich variety in the gods and goddesses and all the different belief systems. And it really does illustrate not just the creativity of the human mind, but the power of faith and of beliefs. And I think there's a lot a fantasy writer can learn and take away from Greek mythology. So I was keen to cover it on the show. And to help me do so, uh, I'm delighted to welcome back Lucy Atkinson and Yanina Arndt from the Faith Fellows podcast. Hello and welcome to our hearty dose of mythos and folklore. Uh, and again, I'm delighted to be joined by Yanina Arndt and Lucy Atkinson from the fantastic Faith Fellows podcast. How are you both today? Great, thank you. Thank you for having us. I know, I like for you to be here. And it's uh, we've had a few great discussions, haven't we? And a couple of episodes we got ago, we looked specifically at Norse mythology. And today we're going to continue that exploration with Greek mythology. I, I love ancient Greece. I think I probably fell in love with it when I was reading a series of books by Christian Cameron about the, the Greek-Persian wars. And I just found oh, his level of research is insane. He's he's such a good writer. Um, but I just fell in love with the sort of mythologies and the belief systems that the, the Greeks had. So without further ado, do one of you want to take us take it away and tell us a bit about Greek mythology? Uh, I can I can take you on a quick bullet quick tour, although Greek mythology is kind of vast and endless, mm. yeah. I, I think. Most of the time the tales generally all somewhere around the, the 12 Olympians, you know, Zeus, Hades, uh, his wife Hera, and all of those crazy cats <laughs> in all of them. Uh, and we tend to get a lot of stories from uh, from the demigods who are children of one of the gods, uh, like Hercules or Heracles, depending on which way you think, <laughs> you think of him, who is a demigod who has to do all these trials. And it's, it's a lot about, like, heroics and... Uh, battle and 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 being successful in battles there's a lot of that going on there's also a lot of like uh like art competitions and and whoever can do the best art whoever can do the best poetry so it's, it's really vast there's a lot going on in greek mythology yeah so it sounds like it influenced every layer of of, of society and of people's lives yeah i think it, i think it has a it has a stronghold on on the culture these days yeah I, it doesn't sound like you could do anything in, in ancient Greece without pouring a libation to the gods. 
Yeah, they like all the all the mythological creatures are very much everywhere that you know that you go. There's you know creatures in the water, creatures in the trees, um, you know in the air, everywhere. And you've you've got gods for all sorts of yeah, of, yeah. Um, all sorts of combinations of weird things as well. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I find really interesting. It's like everything is is animated in some sense. Everything has a soul. Um, yeah, it's a nice way to look at the world, though, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, uh, how, um, what, what is the sort of the Greek mythology? Then, what, what sort of values or sort of moralities does it promote? It's. I think it's difficult because the because having those twelve gods is all the like big gods. You get all of the values. So you have a goddess of love. You have have a god of poetry. You have, a, but then you also have like the gods of war and Hephaestus, the the blacksmith god who who like basically just creates great armor. I, mm. I think glory in war is a big one. They, they put that forward a lot. Yeah. Why do you think they did that? Is that because they wanted to create a, a more, I wouldn't say more violent society, but one there where conquest was uh, and, and sort of success in war and expansion was quite important in their lives? Yeah, probably. I mean, they. I think that's that's what all mythologies do is they sort of mirror the... The values that were important to uh, a people in, at a certain time, and like you know, um, so that's that's certainly certainly one of them. Um, I also find it really interesting, though, like the different the different kinds of love that are personified in in Greek mythology as well. Like there's there's all sorts of um, all sorts of different uh, virtues that are promoted, but not so much as not necessarily with so much judgment, more as this is what exists, like as a from a from a much more philosophical standpoint. And I, I always think like obviously the Spartans, they were just like a complete military nation, weren't they? And mm-hmm. that must seep down from the gods. Like you're doing God's work. This is your purpose, isn't it? And yeah, like, I know from like reading a lot of historical fiction, like from this era, that hunting was another big thing it was all about proving yourself mm. as i go for men anyway it was like proving yourself as a man as a warrior and this these sorts of like i suppose it's like uh what we see in christianity and and mary the virgin mary and how what mary was like is sort of foisted onto other women and what people expect other other women to be like to, to to share the similarities so do you think that was like that for women in in ancient greece as well um like the, all these sort of these female deities women sort of felt the pressure to sort of live like they did i suppose or, or, or how they're supposed to have lived i'm sure they did it must have been considerably more confusing than than the christian <laughs> pantheon though yeah. because the women are so different in in the gods yeah. you know you do get the the kind of virgin goddesses the athena and the artemis although who are both just different again and then mm. you get the kind of housewife gods and and then you get the kind of aphrodite who's another thing another thing again there's kind of there are women who artemis is a goddess of war really yeah. You know, so the women are involved in war too, as well as the housekeeping, as well as the hearth. Yeah, you know, yeah. absolutely. And, and nature, Persephone, and, and Demeter—they, the women, come across all areas in the pantheon. So it's certainly more equal. I would like, you know, it's more. Both genders are more 
valued in their own way at least um you know than than sort of the medieval patriarchal kind of view um there are still some you know some traditional uh some traditional things that you know would you could you could consider have come from that but at the same time i think you had with the with greek mythology as a woman you've got you know, they they would have had a chance to say, "I'm worshiping this particular goddess. This is what I want to be." Yeah. Um, rather than, you know, just everyone being alike in that in that sort of sense. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more flexibility. <laughs> yeah. So have you got good any particularly? Yeah, good options. Yeah. Have you got any particularly favorite tales then from the Greek mythos? I'm an Icarus girl. I always talk. <laughs> it's Icarus all the way for me. But I, I think because I feel like the way that society understands Icarus is not the way that Icarus, the tale is. I feel like we misinterpret Icarus a lot. I, I'm desperately trying to make it into a working class tale. <laughs> Go on, tell us a bit more. <laughs> Just because I think when people, the thing, when you say Icarus, the thing that people will think of is they'll think of, oh, Icarus who flew too close to the sun. So they think it's like a story about ambition and about Icarus being overconfident. But it's not quite that because there's the detail that they forget, which is that Icarus lived his whole life in the in a workshop under the labyrinth. He never saw the sun. He didn't know what the sun looked like. He didn't know what the yeah. sun was. He had no idea that the sun was going to burn him like that. So instead of being a tale about Icarus overshooting and being ambitious, I think it's a tale about someone being oppressed and kept quiet and then not having the tools to survive when he stops mm. being oppressed. Yeah. I think it's a working class tale. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way of looking. I, I never knew of that detail, that he was indoors most of his life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. What about you, Yanni? Have you got any particularly favourite tales? Um, well, I I sort of uh, learnt more about the, the Latin side of things at school because I did Latin for a very long time. Um, but one particular favourite of uh, my Latin teacher, who was absolutely brilliant at inspiring us with all this um she told us about um Acteon and he is um the tale of his is the only one where someone gets punished um unjustly so um his tale is that he accidentally sees Artemis naked in the woods just because he's on a hunt and he walks past and she's bathing with some nymphs um, in a cave and he just walks, yeah, he just happens to walk past. It wasn't his intention. Um, he wasn't a pervert. And then she is so um, enraged that he saw her in an imperfect form that uh, she punishes him for that um, and turns him into a stag so that his own hounds on the hunt tear him apart and kill him. Yeah. So it's uh that just stuck with me for some reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what's, what's the sort of moral of that story? <laughs> yeah, it's um it's also interesting because I think one another reason it stuck with me was that um the the particular reason it was also really portrayed as um as unjust by Ovid again, as you know, which is which is what I read, was that he was uh, he felt he was unjustly punished and exiled for happening upon uh, some, you know, undue uh, intercourse at court, um, <laughs> and uh, so he was he was sent away after, you know, being basically 
being the nation's favorite uh, bard and having to sacrifice his, his entire career and life for just happening upon something. So that, you know, so that might have very much resonated in that tale when he when he incorporated that in his metamorphosis. One thing I like about the Greek, which, which we've spoken about, is the variety of the gods and the goddesses. How do you think, or how can fantasy writers learn and apply such a, sort of a, a broad sort of belief system into their writing? I think we all come into contact with lots of different belief systems. So just to just to be open to them and to keep those things in mind that are, you know that have that you related to or that you just found interesting that just shows you how how many beliefs are out there and and how how varied they are and that can inspire you to to you know incorporate them in all sorts of ways and i think we can also just learn from greek mythology again the great stories and the you know and you've got great sort of character motivations all the all the gods have lots of petty quarrels you know they're very 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 human and I think that's a that's a big thing that um goes well in stories and that that we resonate with today because those stories of you know uh jealousy and and greed and war and love you know they're all still relevant but they feel you know you've got gods that feel more human what do you think Lucy? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good that's a good shout. I think that uh, the one of the big dangers in fantasy is falling into that trap of kind of almost tokenism, where if you create a race of orcs, you're like, okay, this is what the orcs are like. Yeah. You know, the orcs are like this, and and the benefit of seeing something like Greek mythology is that the women are very different. All the particular nymphs are very different. Every little Mm. subsection of the pantheon you've got has people who have different opinions and different variations and people who go against type. And and I think that's important to remember. Nothing is just one way. Mm. Yeah. It's easy to do that when you're writing fantasy, isn't it? That you you come up with things in your mind and because you've got the pressure to create a whole world, you do forget to add these subtle differences uh, and the varieties of, of what people believe in, in particular, and because mm. nobody's the same, and it's, it's real skill and well built. I think is showing enough variety to to get the to give the readers the impression that everyone's unique, everyone's different, everyone's got their own lives that they're living in the background, and absolutely. Uh, have you got any um, examples of, of Greek mythology applied in, in fantasy? Not fantasy, but uh, I'm a big fan of the, the Madeleine Miller books, which kind of skirt fantasy and historical fiction. They kind of live in the middle, I think. Yeah. Um, so Song of Achilles and, and Circe, which is mm-hmm. really almost much more fantastical, I think, Circe. Yeah. Um, and she does that really well. What she does is kind of humanise the myth. Nice. That's a good way to approach it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we obviously see a lot of Greek mythology films, don't we? Like, was it Clash of the Titans? Was that recently? Oh, well, thanks so much again for, for taking the time to chat to us today about the, uh, the ancient Greeks and what they believed in. Uh, it's been fantastic to, uh, to learn new things as well. And hopefully you, you guys at home, you'll learn something new as well. So how, how can we find out a bit more about um, you two and the Fae Fellows podcast? 
Yeah, so if you want to listen to us, we're on Spotify and Anchor and all sorts of different platforms, wherever you get your podcasts from. And uh, we are on social media. We are on Facebook, uh, Instagram and Tumblr as at Faith Fellows Podcast and as Faith Fellows on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks so much for, for joining me again today. We'll, we'll speak to you everyone soon. A big, big thank you to Yanina and Lucy for taking the time to share their insights on all things ancient Greece. Please do check out their podcast, the Faith Fellows Podcast, for more about myths and folklore. It's fantastic listening. And that is all we have time for in this instalment. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll be back on the 28th of Jan with more fantasy writing tips and inspiration. If you did enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow. And please consider giving us a quick review and a rating on Spotify too. It does, I know I say it means a lot and it helps, but it genuinely does it. That's how we, we're able to grow. So please, it only takes a second. It means the world. And don't forget, you can join our writing community for more help, guidance and support. And check out our Patreon page to get access to fantasy writing books, classes and workshops. That's all from me. Thank you so much for listening and keep on scribbling.